Welcome back to season two of Son of a Preacher Man with Jonathan Martin, a podcast all about finding beauty and brokenness, grace and grit, God and the ambiguity of the in-between. In a specially personal episode, Jonathan talks candidly about how it wasn't the shipwreck that he thought would take him under, but the day after. The worst thing, even more than the worst thing, is when you think you are over it, but you are not. When what you thought was an oasis is only a mirage. But there is hope, and finding hope again is what this week's episode is all about. We hope you enjoy. Hey everybody, this is Jonathan Martin, and welcome back to Son of a Preacher Man. I want to really dive in headfirst to some uh, major content in a couple moments, but if you will indulge me, I really feel like I owe you guys a couple of updates first. Um, First of all, I have to think some of you are wondering, what on earth are you doing right now, and where all have you been exactly, Uh, and where are you now? The answer to these questions is, I'm really not sure. It has been a whirlwind the last couple of months. I've been traveling almost nonstop. I am recording today from Nashville, Tennessee, uh, but this is the first time I've been back in Nashville, and I don't know when. So it's just been an especially hectic season. Of course, the last episode we did was from Perth, Australia with my dear friend Jared McKenna. That was a wonderful trip, but even before that, just nonstop and have just have not caught my breath. So it has been wide open. Um, I don't mean to be too much of a tease here, but I will tell you some really beautiful things are snapping into place right now that I'm excited about. You know, this season of all the travel, I feel like there's been grace for it. I've certainly enjoyed it, but also really ready to kind of be settled in with some things. And I don't know, there's just right now a remarkable amount of clarity and perspective in a way that I feel like I've had for so long, as in like years of my life. So I'm deeply grateful for that and have so much I promise I'm going to share really soon. But I would appreciate your prayers and all that because I am in the midst of some uh, transition right now. And uh, again, all of it's super good, but I would appreciate your prayers. Um, also, if you are the praying kind, I have been sick. So I'm, I'm coming up, up out of that. I think especially the schedule, the pace at this point had me pretty uh, run down, but I feel like I'm back in the land of the living. And while I'm in update mode, I feel like I should say a little bit about the forthcoming book, which I feel like I've been talking about forever. Those of you who have followed me for a while know I have two books. The first one's called Prototype, came out in 2013. I wrote How to Survive a Shipwreck in 2015. It was published in 2016. Never would have dreamed it would take me this long <laughs> to get the next one out there. Because, you know, people who know me know um, I don't claim that I'm prolific, but I think I have a lot of thoughts and I have a lot of words. And so why that doesn't translate into a book has been kind of a mystery until recently. Um, I feel like along with this clarity and perspective I've been gaining um, has been a sense of illumination even around all that. Because I feel like uh, as much as the first book was really about wonder and innocence and kind of coming back to that sort of naivete, um, and the second book was so much about loss and death and shipwreck. This really feels like it's the resurrection book. And I think especially as personal as Shipwreck was, and as much as that took out of me, I just had to live some more life. Um, I feel like in some ways, I'm just now starting to fully occupy some of this resurrection space um, in a way to where I really know how to talk about it 
from a firsthand experiential place. So even some of that feels more clear right now. So I'm in the midst of a massive rewrite that I think will be done very, very soon. So I am hoping to get this manuscript in so, so soon now. Um, so would appreciate your prayers there and still crossing my fingers that uh, the book will get to you by the end of 2019. So that's exciting. And uh, last but not least, I feel like I should say a special thank you and just a shout out to our patrons. For those of you that have been supporting so of a preacher man, I cannot thank you enough, nor can I articulate strong enough how I am the worst. We have some wonderful incentives, and I've just been terribly behind in the whirlwind. I can be a bit of a one-man band these days, and I have these great intentions about rolling um, out some of the incentives with in a really cool way. Please know that all of that is coming very, very soon. In fact, I'm going to be upping the ante and doing some extra, extra to make up for lost time. So for those of you who are supporting, uh, you're the reason I'm here and able to do this. Thank Thank you so much. For those of you who are considering support, uh, just know I deeply appreciate it. And um, there's a lot coming in terms of uh, just some interactive things I want to do, ways I want to show some appreciation and just connect with you guys deeper. So thank you for making this possible. There is a lot that's in the works right now that I think you guys are really going to love. So just wanted to, to give a little bit of update. From there, I thought, you know, I know the last podcast, I talked with Jared a bit about joy and a bit about life on the other side. I'd like to unpack that a bit and go a little bit deeper into the story I've been living these last couple years um, that I hope would make sense of some things. You know, um, I do aspire to be a vulnerable person. I'm always a little cautious about how I share some things because, I don't know, especially when anything involves anybody else in any other way, I'm always... Um, if you don't mind me saying it this way, I'm such a big believer in owning your own shit. And uh, I really try to do that and practice that. So I try to be cautious in and around all that. But there's also a sense of like, just feeling like some of this could be helpful for the journey that some of you are on. You know, um, I get so much wonderful feedback on the shipwreck book every day of my life. And I'm never, I never get used to that. I never stop being grateful that a book that came out of such profound pain seems to touch other people in such raw places. And that there seems to be a grace on that, something I hope of the breath of the Spirit that um, is healing for people. And I'm so thankful. But you know, it's interesting because the more I reflect on that season of my life, it's so much more clear to me now how I think when I wrote Shipwreck, I was glimpsing shore. Um, like I was deep enough into the process and deep enough into the pain and the sense of loss and failure. I was glimpsing it, but I wasn't really there yet. There was this sense of, of trying to write my way to shore. And I think especially in the season that followed that, um, after I resigned from the church that I pastored in Renovatus, uh, in Charlotte, um, going through a painful divorce, um, relocated to Tulsa, Oklahoma. And I know, especially in that season of my life, I just, deep down, I needed everything to work because I needed a redemptive story. And it's funny because I even write about that in the book, this sort of like trying to get to a premature resolution. And yet I, I know there was all these ways that I was still trying to do that because I think how else do we make meaning, especially if you've gone through a really difficult season, except you kind of want a neat ending to be able to say, um, I was there, I'm here now, it's all over, and now it's in order. So I wrote something several months ago that um, I've had on my mind that felt like it could be resonant for some of you because I think in some ways 
you know, I used to think it was the shipwreck, whatever that cataclysmic event is for you, um, whether that's a sickness, whether that's death, whether that is a personal failure or the loss of a relationship or a job, that's the thing that takes you out. But I now think um, that's not really the thing that takes almost anybody out. It's the false hope on the other side of that that I think really is the most discouraging thing. So what I wrote several months ago, the thing you thought you couldn't survive is not actually the hardest thing to survive. I've written about shipwreck. But the truth is, I don't think it's the shipwreck that actually takes most people out. We can survive more than we think we can, more than we thought we should, perhaps even more than we'd want to. People survive the unsurvivable every day. The real monster is false hope. When you thought you saw a new shore, but it was only an illusion. When you thought you found a miracle, but it was only a mirage. When you thought you found an oasis, but there was only more sand. When you thought you'd hit the bottom, only to fall deeper still. When you thought you'd found your people, but they didn't turn out to be your people. When you thought you'd found a new home, but it was just another pit stop on what feels like an endless journey. When you thought you found the fire in your belly, but it was only indigestion. When you thought you saw the limb of the corpse move, but alas, it was only the wind. When you heard a sound in the distance that you thought had to be God, but it was only an echo of your own voice. It's not the shipwreck that threatens to destroy you. It's the heartbreak that comes when you think you've made it out, but you haven't. And even then, it's not the day of this dark discovery that takes you out with the tide. It's the day after. Um, I wrote that in a moment, um, I don't know, probably six or eight months ago. That was really what I was feeling. You know, I think, especially after I relocated and I moved away from home really for the first time. I'd never been away from my native North Carolina and from my family and all the places and people there that I loved. And there was this sense of striking out and, um, and opportunity, you know, for all the things that, all the ways that I were in pain, um, there was a sense of kind of initial optimism that came too. I took a position at a church as a teaching pastor, wonderful church, wonderful people have nothing but great things to say about them. But, you know, I thought even with that community, I felt like, you know, maybe that was my long-term destination. Maybe that's home. Maybe th- these are my people. This is my place. Uh, and it didn't turn out that way. I was there for about a year and a half. It was a good experience with good people. Um, I definitely felt like there was a way in which, you know, I on the other side of my shipwreck was finding my voice in a different way, which meant having to learn to be more honest about some things I was seeing in the world. A lot of it had to do with race, and some of it did have to do with politics, not in the partisan way, but in the general sense, I think, you know, calling Jesus Lord is a political claim. And I wasn't nearly, by the way, as overt and kind of guns blazing about all that at the time as I am now, but I was wading into it and I could feel these tensions, you know, um, between some of the things I was saying and where some of the people in the community were, or where they felt like it needed to go. No judgment on any of them. It just, you know, I felt like I had to be whole and find a kind of integration in that. And that didn't seem to be um, necessarily resonant with everybody else who was there. And, um, you know, it just it was just messy and awkward because I was on the heels of an actual divorce. And a year and a half later, I'm going through a community divorce. And there were some things around that I feel like were misunderstood. And I just, you know, it just it was just hard. It was just painful. 
but you know, by then I kind of felt like, you know, I've written my shipwreck book that's out there. Like almost there's no permission to grieve or cry because, um, there was enough ego left in me still that you want to project some level of stability or success or the sense that somehow making it, you know, um, I think in addition to all that, um, I also found myself, you know, I met my now ex-wife when I was 19, got married at 21, trying to figure out dating in your mid-30s. Oh, my dear Lord, what a thing that that is. Complicated, complex thing. And, um, you know, I was in a long-term relationship with a wonderful person for three years. I thought maybe that was going to be permanent. That ended up not working out either. And once again, no judgment in any of that. In fact, I feel like if I learned anything in this season of my life, it's almost um, these ways that I... I feel like I'm fundamentally bad at relationships, actually, that sometimes I think I don't know how to do this. But that was kind of the one thing that was still tethering me there. And um, I just know, especially like when I left Tulsa, just this unique sense of aimlessness and feeling lost because I was just so, I was still was really grasping for solid ground in some way or another. And when none of that panned out, or even, you know, not to say they were the wrong things or that God was in that in the time, but, you know, when none of that turned out to be home and none of that seemed to really lead fully into new life, um, I really didn't know what to do with myself. I think also, if I'm honest, and I haven't talked real openly about this too, because for one, I don't want to be too self-referential about the kind of things that I'm doing. Uh, You know, I feel like if God gives you something to say, if God gives you a gift, you operate in that gift, you say that thing, you give your testimony, your song, your story, but I don't want to just be reflecting on it all the time. Certainly not out loud. But I will say, I think there's a lot of pain too because um, I, I could definitely feel, and I still sense this, and it's still more painful than I know how to talk about often, the distance and the dissonance of now that I'm finding kind of this new sound in me and actually coming to encounter God in deeper ways, more real ways, and my faith life, my own sense of connection to Jesus, my only sense of spirit has never been more vital than it is now. But I feel like some of those things that I was coming to see and therefore having to say um, was creating distance with other people. And uh, as much as I want to project a certain kind of strength, rejection hurts, you know, and especially when it's people where you come from. I think people know me. My favorite picture of Johnny Cash is the one where he's flipping off the camera. I mean, it's an amazing picture. And honestly, it's kind of like my my icon for 2019. (laughs) That gives you a sense of what's to come. But truth be told, that's really not what's in my nature. I'm not a flip everybody off, F you, burn it all down kind of person. That's just not who I am. Like uh, For all the ways that I'm different from some of the people and places where I come from, I have such a rich appreciation for all that. And I don't, I'm not combative, but it felt like the things that God was stirring up in me were, you know, th- th- these things could come out that way. And, and um, just not knowing entirely what to do with that it was interesting, too, because I feel like some of the things that I've been preaching out loud kind of on the top layer these last few years in the form of story and parable and text, all these things that I really felt like the spirit was using to guide me through had such particular meaning in terms of how my own story was unfolding. And I'm going somewhere with this. Um, I have a mentor named Dr. Ricky Moore. I talk about Dr. Moore a lot. He's an old Testament professor. Uh, I did my first master's at the Pentecostal theological seminary and he was my old Testament professor there. Now he's at Lee university. 
but just a delightful man. And anybody who knows Dr. Moore knows there's something boyish about him. Like he's well into the 60s now, but there's a playfulness that's there, uh, a twinkle, a sense of mischief that I really have come to identify as a marker of people who walk in the presence of God. There's a holy mischief. I saw it in my spiritual grandmother, Sister Margaret Gaines, this wonderful missionary to Palestinian people. Um, and, and he was very much shaped by Sister Gaines, so that makes sense. There's a playfulness that's there, but also there's this sense of the fear of the Lord, a reverence and otherness. It's like Dr. Morris spent so much time immersed in the Old Testament prophets himself that he is that kind of prophet. Does it talk about them? I mean, I could tell you stories for days. Um, some of this is kind of inside baseball, but the denomination that I came from went through a split many years ago, the Church of God and the Church of God of Prophecy. And for like six months, Dr. Moore uh, felt like God spoke to him through an Elisha text where he actually um, took these these two handles of like an axe head and he wrote the Sons of Lee on one, which is the Church of God, and the Sons of Tomlinson representing the Church of God of Prophecy. And then he bound them together with a rope um, and carried it around for six months. And it was like the sign of the division in the church, but also sort of uh, what he felt like was God's cry for unity. And it just, you know, he carried this around everywhere in Axe Head for six months, which is amazing. Um, that's Dr. Moore. Or I remember him preaching in chapel one day uh, when I was in the seminary, where he gets up to preach. And I can't remember the text now for anything. It's from the Mount of Prophets. But there's some text that references wordlessness. And Dr. Moore had, had been talking for all of maybe like 30 seconds. And he says, sometimes the only response, sometimes the only word God has is wordlessness. And he just sits down. And it was amazing. You talk about a drop the mic moment and a holy moment. There was such a sense of reverence that kind of washed over that place. And people began praying and repenting. And you know, it was beautiful. But this, this is the kind of man that he is. Very much that otherness is is to him, and Dr. Moore has this um, this whole image. It was in a paper of his years ago, but I know I've also got a, a good friend, Jonathan Stone. Um, some of this I know John and Dr. Moore have talked a lot about, and I don't know now what I'm superimposing where. But the the general idea, this image of Dr. Moore, is this whole idea of like when when the house becomes too small for the sons and daughters, when it becomes too constrictive. Remember, part of that word for John in particular was this notion that he wasn't supposed to leave the house, but that the the time was going to come when uh, people would put him might put him outside the house, and if so, that would be out the front door in front of everybody else, so the elders would see how he's leaving and why he's leaving. And um, we've wrestled with the meaning of that a lot in our lives, but um, that whole notion of what happens when the house gets too small is one that's been especially resonating in me these last few years because that's that's what it felt like. It felt like a lot of the former spaces for me were just getting too small. And I didn't want them to be too small because that was my world. And there wasn't this cavalier sense of, well, I'll just go out and find somebody else or do something like It's my whole world. But that sense of the spaces... Uh, just starting to, starting to feel like they were shrinking. And um, I don't want to talk about outgrowing a thing. Like I was more mature because I don't think of it that way at all. But just feeling like my own sense of calling, my own vocation was pulling me into broader spaces. But I can tell you, as some of those doors started to shut and some of the former spaces didn't feel like spaces I belonged in anymore, wow, what unique anxiety because you wonder... 
am I ever going to find a people? Am I ever going to find a place? Am I ever going to find a sense of home? And wondering, I don't know, if um, kind of leaving the house that felt too small, um, will there be any sort of broader spaces? That's been what's so crazy about these last couple of years is it feels like every time it constricts, every time a relationship is severed, every time something doesn't seem viable anymore, and there's that natural season of grief that you go through, of course, it's been astonishing some of the other doors that God has opened. I never could have dreamed of. I hope this is okay to talk about on air. I'll do it in a non-specific way. I had... Um, I'm not a person who's connected politically or ever had political aspirations. Um, I have done some lobbying the last couple of years for stuff like the One Campaign, um, part of a group of evangelicals, along with some of my friends, and the liturgist, and uh, who who went to do some lobbying for evangelicals on climate change. Or um, I think I mentioned one already. Uh, some of my friends who work in education reform as well. Several things the last couple of years are bringing me to DC and. Um, there was a season where, I don't know, I felt like there was a lot of grace on that. I had, during the Obama administration, got to go to the White House for a couple of cool things. The um, One was just like a Medal of Honor ceremony. One was uh, the White House reception when the African-American, the Black Smithsonian Museum opened up formally. That was a crazy experience. You know, Samuel Jackson and Kobe Bryant and Oprah and Stedman, everybody's there. It's crazy and wonderful. But, you know, I kind of thought um, at the same time some of these other doors were shutting, that all of that was kind of coming to an end, too, because the things I was saying uh, felt like they were more and more polarizing. And I just thought, well, you know, kind of shut that down. And then I was preaching at a church in D.C. for a friend of mine a couple years ago when a lady who's since become a dear friend came and talked to me afterwards, who's actually working inside the Trump administration. And given some of the things I've said about the administration, you know, I would have thought... <laughs> Everything was shut down there, to be sure. But she was talking about, for her and for some other believers in the administration, how much my critique of all of that, and specifically the spiritual dynamics at play, um, felt so on point. And weren't things they were reading or hearing elsewhere, um, felt like that it sort of named some things they felt like otherwise weren't being named, and essentially asked me to come in and pray with them. And, and over the course of the next year or two, I got to come back and pray with them several times, but... If I, if you just knew the depth of this, um, being in this tiny little prayer room um, and having the experience with some of these folks working inside the administration and their tongues and prophecies and and like it was it was remarkable. Um, very open about the some of the really negative, dark spiritual dynamics there and some of what they believe was deception, but also the sense of feeling like God was calling them to be there somehow. And, and you know, complicated, of course. But man, I just remember one of those moments in particular in the midst of one of those powerful prayer times was thinking, how on earth did I, how on earth did I get here? And, and it almost felt like that was representative of what this whole journey has been, that whenever these doors shut, that then there's something else that opens up. And um, I don't want to say this like in a, in a mean way or an arrogant way, but you know, I feel like I've spent so much of my life, sometimes at least, trying to appeal to people or police people whose approval I really didn't even want on some level. Like, what would it mean for some of these folks to like me or agree with me? And, you know, to find that on the other side of obedience in some of these areas that the people I have found, the people I have connected with, oh, it just... It's so much more wonderful, and uh, it's wild, to be sure. And I certainly don't know 
where I'm going or exactly where it all lands, but I love the wildness of it, you know. And um, and it's interesting too because there's this sense deep down that even when I move into some different spaces or the theology changes, that some of what I'm writing about in this book right now, uh, more more transparently, are some specific ways that my theology has changed and my heart has changed. I just I just had to I've just had to learn to be honest with, and. Um, it's an especially complicated position. I think a lot of you out there can identify with where you have these fathers and mothers in the faith who invested in you in a certain way and they shaped you and you want to honor that. And yet, ironically, the same people who taught you how to listen to the spirit. Now there's this sense of the spirit is leading you somewhere else into something else. And what do you do when faithfulness in this present moment means disappointing people from your past. Because the very fact that you're trying to walk in the Spirit the way they taught you to, and trying to listen to that dynamic voice, that God of the Exodus who's always on the move, the very fact that you're trying to be obedient to that voice now is creating this tension. I know some of you heard me tell this before, but I think about it almost daily. My dear friend Carlos Rodriguez, who's also been on the show, Carlos, like me, comes in from a very Pentecostal, charismatic environment from this whole catch the fire movement in Toronto, the Toronto blessing and all of that. And his spiritual father, who was really kind of the architect of that movement, had Carlos when he was in his own 20s, about like me, you know, speaking on the big stages and getting a lot of exposure, but also, you know, very much playing by the rules in ways that were good and right in that container for that season of his life. But Carlos tells the story of when his own mentor, his spiritual father, sat down with him and said, and I still think about this all the time, Carlos, the day is going to come when you're going to come to me and you're going to tell me about the next move of God. When you tell me about the next move of God, I'm going to tell you it's not God. When I tell you it's not God, it is God. Keep going. (laughs) I still think that's one of the most self-aware statements I've ever heard. And as I grow into my own weird kind of father in the faith, I hope I could have that kind of self-awareness to be able to see that um, whatever revelation I have had, whatever clarity I have had in the language of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians Corinthians 13, I'm still seeing through a glass darkly, you know? It's not face-to-face. It's partial. It's not complete. And there will be sons and daughters to come up after me, as it has been in my own case, who I'm also going to think are going to be pushing it too far and taking the ideas in a direction where they're not meant to go. But to have that sense of confidence, not just in them, but in the leading of the Spirit, to say, if God is in this, you, you got to go. You, you, you need to go. Follow that voice. And yes, remain humble. And yes, don't be arrogant. And, and yes, keep your heart right. But whatever you do, keep walking. Keep walking. Because I'm so convinced that it is the Spirit who stirs up that kind of restlessness. There have been all kinds of things that have been at play in my own, what I think of as being my walk away from Jerusalem, which, you know, again, I still love the church and all that, but leaving Jerusalem for me has been this metaphor, walking away from the temple, walking away from some of the institutions and structure and establishment in the way that I knew them before. And that's been lonely at times and isolating at times. And um, I don't know, I feel like there's so much of my own sense of identity that's been in flux. But I had this experience a couple months ago, and I think I like drove by this in the last podcast, but it felt like it, it needed some unpacking. When I went to uh, Dublin 
Ireland a few months ago, there really was this sense of pilgrimage to it. Um, everybody knows I'm a big U2 fan. I've been to 27 U2 shows all time, which is embarrassing. Actually, I'd only been to 23 before that week because I saw four in Dublin the same week. Speaking for some friends, so, you know, basically creating a reason to go and just try to break even. Um, but I'm general admission on the floor, and I went to four consecutive shows by myself every night. And even that felt important, that, like, I was down the floor in this mass of people. But it very much felt like the culmination of this long journey I was on. I realized uh, right about the time I... I took that trip that had been five years, five years since I hit an iceberg in my life, five years of pain and deconstruction and wondering. This was after I'd left Tulsa, and this was after the sense of false hope, and where am I really, and is it ever going to land? Five long years. And there was just this sense over and over again that week of the Holy Spirit saying to me, and I don't, you know, I don't claim to be some kind of prophet, but as best as I could discern God's voice, there was the sense that that whole season really was coming to an end. And I just feel like at every turn, God was saying, um, I'm making all things new. Behold, I'm making all things new. And there really was the sense of old things that were just starting to pass away. There was a letting go like I had not experienced before that I don't think I would have been prepared for before. Because I think, you know, it, it, it takes that long sometimes for uh, our, our fingers to be fully unpried from all the things that we've been hanging on to. But it felt like some of those things were happening. And there was one night in particular while I'm at the show and U2 is playing a song that, you know, I love but doesn't have any sentimental meaning to me at all. It's a song called Who's Gonna Ride Your Wild Horses. It's off of their Octing Baby record. And while Bono is singing this this lyric, uh, the, the words are, don't turn around, don't turn around again, don't turn around your gypsy heart, don't turn around and don't look back. It was like the spirit so pressed that into me. I just, I started weeping. In the middle of the crowd, I started weeping because I knew there was it, was, it was the Lord. It was God saying, stop looking back. Stop looking over your shoulder. And there's been time for grief and loss, and there is a time to feel all the feelings, and you don't need to rush past that. And it's okay to be where you are. Things you guys have heard me say a thousand times. But there really was this, this, like this hard shift in me of God saying it's time for things that are new. And it's just been astonishing, even since then, the, um, the kind of freedom that I've been finding. You know, part of the, even the U2 story for me, um, when I was, uh, those of you who read my book, Prototype, know when I was a boy, I would ride my bike in circles at the end of a cul-de-sac, making up stories out loud. And I wasn't praying consciously, but looking back, I definitely feel like those are my early experiences of the presence of God, Um, this unfettered imagination and dreaming and this complete lack of self-consciousness, which is what I think it really is to be in the presence of God, to get over yourself, to get out of your head, and and just to simply be, to fully be alive and to be human. Those are my early experiences of that. And, uh, you know, I, eight years old, riding in circles for hours on end, and I know that was where I somehow first came to recognize God. And it wasn't until my early 30s that I was on vacation, I was riding my bike in circles, riding a bike for the first time in 20 years, mind you, that it brought me back to that experience. And I had this 
this very powerful kind of renewal of that sense of innocence and, and wonder um, that was largely the catalyst for that first book. In fact, while I was writing circles and having this uh, profound experience, the U2 song Beautiful Day came on and the exuberance of that song and that, that sense of, of joy so was so etched in me and on me that I felt like I needed something to mark the experience. That's when I got this um, heart in a suitcase tattoo off of their All That You Can't Leave Behind record, which Beautiful Day is on, that I got that on my left forearm. So that's the only tattoo I have. And now um, that I was in Dublin and experiencing these things and feeling these things, I was coming to see that very much like U2 in the 90s kind of go on this real experimental journey. And they recorded albums like Octung Baby and Zeropa and Pop, which are very much... Um, there was a sense of wandering to them and, and getting away from the earnestness and the hyper sincerity and explicit spirituality from where they came from. But that really was what even framed this whole last U2 tour. You know, the last two records were songs of innocence and songs of experience based off the title of, uh, you know, a William Blake title there. But, the you know, moving from songs of innocence, the wonder, into the songs of experience, the deconstruction, the unraveling, the falling apart. But then now, finding the new life, the new innocence on the other side of experience, that second naivete that, um, that, that is chosen, you know. Um, I've talked a lot on here about the new construction on the other side of the deconstruction. I felt like that's what was happening in my own life. So I got my second tattoo ever on my right forearm, which is the kind of little space baby with the stars around it from Zeropa, because it felt like that sort of experimental phase, the songs of experience phase was coming to an end. And now I'm, I'm moving into the new thing. I've had the innocence. I've had the experience. But now into something new. Now to leap into the joy. <laughs> now uh, to allow myself to become a child again, even though I've seen a lot of things and I know a lot of things that I would have thought before I'm not supposed to know. But yet there's this whole new way of seeing God in the world and people. It's very much the season that I'm in now. And I'm finding that as I'm finishing the manuscript and everywhere I go right now, people I talk to, this is my heart because I feel like so many people have been through a season of unraveling and the deconstructing. When I was in Oklahoma City last week and we actually did a, a dinner themed around how to survive a shipwreck at Wonderful, uh, the kitchen at Commonplace Books, which is an amazing store. You should definitely check it out. But uh, a lot of people came and even in sharing their own experiences of shipwreck, I could not believe how many of them talked about leaving church. And how many of those stories had happened roughly in 2016 beyond the sense of complete disillusionment and disenchantment. And uh, again, so grateful for the way that God seems to kind of use that book in the stories. But, you know, I just feel like as much as I hear these days about deconstruction, as much as I hear these days about taking things apart, which is important. Uh, but now I'm so passionate about discovering what it looks like to find life on the other side. What is the new construction? on the other side of the deconstruction. My friend Brad Jerzak uh, says very wisely that sometimes deconstruction, uh, quotation marks, can turn into a kind of iconoclasm. There was this movement of iconoclasm in the Protestant Reformation where there was such an overreaction against 
um, any kind of statues, art, icons in the church. They literally just start tearing down everything that's beautiful. And Brad so wisely talks about how you have to be so careful about that. In the same way that Jesus gives us the parable about wheat and weeds, how you don't go pulling out the weeds because there are things that are green and hopeful that are growing. You know, the, the deconstruction is happening in your own soul, and it's tender and it's precious, and there are things that probably need to be retained. But there is life. There really is life on the other side. And um, I know I've been talking about some of these kind of ideas forever. I promise you that even the next coming weeks, this is going to be fleshed out a lot more because I just feel like I'm in a place now where I'm finally able to articulate some of these things a little bit clearer, which is not to say I feel like now I have all the answers. But I, I do have a sense of, uh, of where I feel like I'm supposed to land. I think that being more honest and uh, explicit about some of these things will probably continue my journey a little further of creating distance from some kind of spaces and opening up new ones. But I'm not afraid of that anymore because there is such a sense of the spirit on the journey. And I want, uh, hopefully, to um, that we all together can find the courage to be where we really are. Um, which is the only place that you can be, is where you are now, where you're encountering God now, where you're encountering the Holy Spirit now. There is no there is no going back. I say that. Actually, part of what I talk about in the book is that there actually is a return to Jerusalem, but you definitely don't return to Jerusalem the same way that you left. You're not the same person. And to even come back into some of those sacred spaces, but to have been through your own process of desecration and uh, deconstruction, uh, you, you come back in a very, very different way on very different terms. Um, I think I just really want to say to somebody who needs to hear it that there is life on the other side. And it's real. It's actual. And by God, to quote Frederick Buechner, it's good. Like, it's really, really good. And um, I think part of the reason I was having such a hard time with this manuscript before was that I was still trying to project myself to the shore. Now, again, not with a sense of arrival like as in completeness. Now I feel like I'm, I'm... in a new space where I'm really able to see and experience things that are different, that are so beautiful. And for all the pain, um, I wouldn't trade anything for the sense of wonder and joy and the sense of aliveness that I have right now. And I just want to pray that over some of you. So in that spirit, I am going to be a preacher man right now. And if you don't mind, I want to properly pray for you. God, I just call to mind specifically right now daughters, sons, who are listening to these words who still don't know where they're going and wonder if it's going anywhere, who still struggle with their own sense of God forsakenness or even wonder if you're real or you're there at all. How strange it is that I continue to see that you are the God who walks with us on the road away from God. And it's actually in the absence, in the absence somehow, in the walking away somehow, that you're strangely most found and most available. So God, I just pray specifically for those who have been locked inside small spaces. This will be a time where the world actually starts to get larger again. And the things that have been constricted and constrained, that there'd be a freedom and a breaking forth, new words, For truly, wherever your spirit is poured out, your sons and daughters prophesy. Pray for new visions and dreams. Pray for new community and for mended communities. Those who have been 
lonely would come to know that they are by no means alone, that you walk with them, that you go beside them, and that even walking through the valley of the shadow of death, you have been so present with us. When we have made our bed in hell, you were there. When we took on the wings of the morning and attempted to fly to the uttermost parts of the sea, you were there and you are here now. So Spirit, I just pray now for the grace of the new resurrection of wild, unfettered joy. <laughs> that even if there has been death and there has been grief, that there that's not all there is. You have been carving out space for new life to come forth. And I believe this is a season of that, of newness, of streams in the desert, of new songs, new stories, new miracles. As we follow you, God of the Exodus, pray this in the name of our Father and Mother, the Son, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. God bless you guys. Thank you for listening today. For more, go to JonathanMartinWords.com and follow him on Twitter and Instagram. If you want to become a patron of this podcast and help keep it alive, go to Patreon.com slash man, and we would appreciate your love and support. Now remember, no matter who you are or where you come from, we hope this podcast can help you come to find the love that calls you by your true name. God bless.